right, let's shift gears. Um, the life of pastoring in a community, getting walk through moments of, of grief and hardship and uh, now find the energy to preach a word from the Bible. I'm um, looking forward to it though. This series is going to be good and if uh, you haven't realised yet, this series is called At the Table and it's going to take us from here through to the end of April. And uh, we're going to be looking at um, all of the meals that Jesus shared with people, particularly through Luke's gospel. And I'm looking forward to what God will do as we um, literally feast on his word together. Um, And I'm also extraordinarily excited for how the application of what we hear in God's word and what we journey through together um, will be applied and seen visibly through our lives Um, Because this is not just a theory class. Um, This is also a practice, practical class. We have theory and we have practice. um, And we like to like kind of go and have a go trying out this follow Jesus thing. And then we come back together and we hear more about how that's worked and how that's played out in our lives. And then we go back out and do it again. It's this praxis theory, praxis thing where it's not just like, let's just hear about it and go home. But no, we go out on mission and we work out how this works in real time in the real world, sharing the hope of God with people in our lives. And then we come back and we reflect on that and we uh, worship God and we get together and then we go out and have another crack. Um, And so at the table, I want you to think for um, a moment about some of your most favorite moments around tables. I mean, perhaps... Um, It is a childhood memory of sitting around a much-loved grandparent's table as they spoiled you with all of the goodies that your mum and dad would never give you. My grandma did that, always gave us the lollies and all of the things, said, don't tell your parents, and what do we do? We told our parents. Maybe when you think about favourite moments at a table, maybe there's a favourite restaurant that you have that you just know when you arrive at that restaurant that regardless of what they serve up, the food is going to be amazing and you're going to have a good time. Maybe it's your own dining table at home. Maybe your own family dining table amidst the chaos and the beauty of family life. Perhaps nothing brings you greater joy than being at the table with your kids. I know for my parents, they love it. Down the coast every Christmas, the whole family gets together and we all sit around the big table and we tell stories and we laugh and we reminisce and all of that. I know that would be bringing them great joy, as it is a joy for all of us kids as well. Maybe it's a table where you play board games or play cards or do puzzles. Maybe it's one of those rickety old, you know, um, vinyl-covered card tables with the timber fold-out legs. Maybe you're like, that's my favourite table. Maybe it's a table by a beach or in a park where you sit and you just enjoy God's presence in nature and you go to that table and you sit there and you meet with God. Maybe um, some of your kids won't understand this, but a stable table. You know, those, my grandparents, like with the, the pillow attached to a table you put on your lap in front of the TV and you eat your dinner off. It's just for old people, kids. Um, <laughs> Mings has one. Good on you, Mings. Of course you do. Or maybe it's just at a friend's house and you know that, you know, whenever you get the invite to go to that friend's house, your stomach will be filled, but more so your heart will be filled with joy as you um, engage in friendship and storytelling. I mean, perhaps your favourite table is less conventional than a normal table. Maybe it's a picnic blanket, um, you know, with the, oh, that microphone's (laughs) just caught on to that magnet. I'll take that off because that could get awkward. Um, 
Maybe it's yeah, cheese and bickies on a picnic blanket somewhere and that's your favourite kind of table or it's at camping and you're gathered around a rickety little um, table jam-packed with food that you've been cooking on the barbecue and everyone gathers around. You know, I think about moments that I've had around tables where I am so grateful for God, to God for what he has done at those tables. You know, moments in uh, Colombia and Indonesia and China, traveling with Jen, sitting around the table with Christians who have been so deeply persecuted for their faith and hearing the testimony of God in their life. I think about the meals, particularly in Ambon and Seremjen, that we shared with people who had been such, through such trauma and tragedy, but yet confessed to the goodness of God far out. Some of those meals were rich in Cambodia, being served up who knows what. Um, we're in those dishes, but sitting there and just hearing the stories of what God is doing in communities through our ministries in Cambodia. You know, through hand, uh, books over the sea in Fiji, sitting on bamboo mats in sh- um, tin shanties, you know, eating fresh cooked seafood. It sounds like we're suffering for Jesus. Um, <clears throat> but just hearing what God is doing through the com- remote communities in the island of Kandavu, sitting around community drinking kava and laughing as stories of broken English are told. Every Tuesday, our ministry team here gathers and Fee cooks us lunch. Every Tuesday, we gather at the table as a ministry team every week to plan and to pray and to dream and you know, just to catch up and do what we do. There is so much beauty at the table. I went to Donna and Kev's for afternoon tea the other week. Man, what a beautiful time that was, Donna and Kev. Thank you. Delicious food. Now, hard stuff of life gets wrestled out at tables. I've had to fight for friendships over the table with people. I've had to resolve some of the most difficult conflict I've ever had to walk through at a table. Alex and I have had to have conversations that have been difficult in our marriage across the table. Sometimes tables remind us of those who aren't at that table any longer. Sometimes we can sit at a table and there can be a sense of grief or a sense of loss. It's not just all beautiful and all food and all wonder. Sometimes tables, there are places that we wrestle and deal with the hard things of life at tables. And then there's, of course, this table that we have gathered around this morning, the table of the Lord that we've shared together so beautifully. You know, it's at the Lord's table. For the last 21 years of being part of this church, taking communion every um, once every couple of weeks, or once a month, or whatever our rhythm at the time has been. We're going to take communion every week for this series. I'm looking forward to that. Every week we're going to be taking communion like good churches of Christ people. Um, But for 21 years, the Lord has found me at his table in this room. He found me as a 19-year-old, dazed and confused and feeling lost about where I was going in life. Now at the Lord's table in this room, in this place, among this community... He has spoken words of life and encouragement and vision and commissioning and blessing. He's found me here with family and friends. He's found me at this table in prayer for those who need healing, prayer for those whose marriages are struggling, prayer for those facing addiction and battling through all kinds of difficult things in life. At the Lord's table, we are found the Lord's table, we remember his victory over death and the life that he has won for us. So much of life happens at tables. 
And perhaps this is why we see Jesus so often at a meal, at a table. I came across this quote from a guy named Robert Karras who wrote a book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. <laughs> I think we should read that as a church. And he makes this observation, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Food, community, eating, togetherness, sharing at the table mattered to Jesus. And over this series, we'll be spending our time looking mostly at Luke's Gospel, and we'll see Jesus eating at Levi's, the tax man's house. We'll see Jesus eating at the Pharisee's house. We'll see him feeding 5,000 people in a deserted place. We'll see him eating at Mary and Martha's house, at the chief Pharisee's house, at Zacchaeus' house, in the upper room before his death, on the road to Emmaus in Jerusalem after his resurrection, and on the beach with the disciples as he cooked them food on the beach one morning. And we'll come to see that through meals at many different tables, Jesus broke some pretty radical boundaries that he welcomed people who everyone else thought shouldn't be welcomed. He ate with all of the wrong people. He offered forgiveness. He demonstrated his power. He taught kingdom values. He confronted sin and injustice. He tipped religious convention on its head. He revealed the gospel in so many ways. And at the table, he called people to follow him. I love how N.T. Wright speaks of Jesus' value of meals in his book, Surprised by Hope. He writes, when Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a set of ideas, he gave them a meal. I mean, the table was and is a powerful tool for discipleship. Jesus showed us this. It is a powerful vehicle for declaring the good news to all people that God has come near through his son Jesus and true and eternal life can only be found in him the bread of life in my reading recently I came across a theologue from Dallas Theological Seminary named Barry Jones and he wrote a piece called the dinner table as a place of connection brokenness and blessing and he says this I am convinced that one of the most important spiritual disciplines for us to recover in the kind of world in which we live is the discipline of table fellowship. In the fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention-deficit, disordered culture in which we find ourselves, Christians need to recover the art of a slow meal around a table with people that we care about. He continues... Table fellowship doesn't often make the list of classic spiritual disciplines. But in the midst of a world that increasingly seems to have lost its way with regard to matters of both food and the soul, Christian spirituality has something important to say about the way that sharing tables nourishes us both physically and spiritually. We need a recovery of the spiritual significance of what we eat, where we eat, and with whom we eat. Now, I am of the strong opinion that the tables we gather at have the potential to be the most missional places of our lives. And I believe that the Lord is going to take us to new places in our own discipleship journey 
and how each of us fill his great commission to make disciples as we discover more of Jesus' activity at the table and how he outworked it through meals. And my hunch is that God's heart for us is that at the table over the coming months and throughout this year that we would experience more of his unyielding grace which we see poured out upon tables. Understand the depths of his welcome of you and I and of all people. Have a revelation of the breadth of his invitation to all. Experience the height of his provision and his generosity and relish in the lengths that he has gone to to show us his love. And so I say to you, welcome to the table. For the next three months, we're going to be at the table. We'll be speaking about the table. We'll be looking at Jesus at the table, and I hope you would invite me to your table. (laughs) I like ribs, slow cooked, and nothing less than a knife, fillet, steak, medium rare. (laughs) You're you're often taking notes in church, but I noticed that nobody took any notes just then. Uh, With the little bit of time we've got left, um, we're going to launch into um, an encounter that's actually in John's gospel, not in Luke's gospel, but to frame up. Um, I think a posture of heart and a way of being in this time that I think God is going to encourage us with us uh, from. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to John chapter 2. And this is the record of Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana, where he turned a whole stack of water into wine. Heaps of it, like 600 or so litres of it. That's a whole lot of Shiraz. John 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, which is about 113 litres each. And he said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. (coughs) So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, had now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called over the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then they bring out the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is the first of Jesus' signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's unpack this a little bit. We're not quite sure who the couple were being married that day, but we know that Jesus' mum, Mary, she received the pretty little invite in the mail. And we know that there was also one delivered for Jesus and his disciples. And all of them headed off to this wedding perhaps together, but nonetheless, they were all there present at the wedding. The canapes had been rolling out of the kitchen. The wine and the champagne was being passed around. The local three-piece wedding band were busting out Dancing Queen. 
I don't know what other, that's the only song I know that really they sing at weddings. Uh, that's probably more about my understanding of music or, uh, but anyway, all the wedding bangers were being played. The happy couple were having the time of their lives, everyone deep in wedding mode, laughing, eating, dancing, telling stories. They were getting the forks and clinking the glasses to make the awkward moment where the couple have to kiss in front of everybody. It was the whole box and dice celebration of marriage. And while Mary was having a boogie on the dance floor, um, I'm assuming to the Macarena, uh, I couldn't think of any other song, um, the venue manager calmly met her on the dance floor and grabbed her on the arm and said, hey Mary, just come over here for a sec. He led her off to the side and said, um, Mary, I hate to do this to you, but we have a situation on our hands. Look, you and I both know, Mary, that your boy over there is in cahoots with the big guy upstairs, and I'm wondering if you can get him to do his thing and help us out. What is it? she asked. Well... <clears throat> We've run out of wine. Do you reckon that you could ask him? She said, leave it with me, she said. Jesus was on his way up to perhaps the bar to grab a glass of Shiraz when then Mary came and sighted up next to Jesus and whispered in his ear, son, you won't believe it. They've run out of wine. I'm wondering whether you could ask your dad if he could help out. And Jesus is like, Joseph, what's he going to do? He's gone home to bed, hasn't he? And she's like, no, no, no. Papa G, reckon you two could do your thing? And Jesus turns to her and says, Mum, not my circus, not my clowns. This is not my problem. My time has not yet come equal parts frustrated and probably equal parts knowing the cheekiness of Jesus, Mary knew to sit tight that anything could happen from here. But being one of those mums, and there's none of you here who had to involve herself in everything, she couldn't sit still and do nothing. So Mary went and gathered the servants who were at the meal, the ones who quietly go about their business in the background the servants who are usually there washing the guests' feet, the the servants who are wiping tables and clearing plates and busily topping up waters so people could stay hydrated, the servants that were delivering the food, sweeping up the broken glass, checking the toilet paper was full. Mary pulled all of them together and asked them, whatever Jesus says to you, I want you to do it. Next minute, Jesus was digging into his steak that we know that wedding places always get wrong. Ask for medium rare and it comes out like a leather boot. And he looked across and he saw the MC and the venue manager starting to get a little bit agitated as they scanned the rooms and all they could see were empty wine glasses. And they're talking amongst themselves, what are we going to do? This is embarrassing because to run out of wine at a wedding would bring shame on the family. They're like, far out, how do we get ourselves out of this mess? This was a real problem. Jesus calling the servants over pointed to six large jars that were used to hold water for ceremonial washing. And he said to the servants, 
guys, go and fill the jars with water. Just, just go and fill the jars. Fill the jars with water. Now, they were not small jars. Uh, six of them, 100 litres or so each. And once the servants filled them right up to the brim, Jesus said to them, scoop some out and take it to old mate up there who's running the show. And the MC took the cup and he swilled it round just to release the aromas and he held it up to the light to check the tannins and he got his sniffer in there again and had a good old sniff of it and he swilled it around again and he put it to his lips and he took a sip of this wine and his face lit up like a sunrise as he tasted the most flavoursome, lengthy, delicious, uh, insert all of the wine talk, the nuanced flavours of oak and berry and a little bit of chocolate and how smooth it was on the palate. And he tasted this stuff and it was incredible. And a little confused, he went to the groom with his glass of Galilee Grange and said, mate, what's the story? Usually you bring out you know, the worst stuff at this point. After everyone's got a skinful, bring out the goon. But here you are, you've brought out the best of the best. Cheers, big ears, and the party went on. I mean, what a fabulous miracle. I mean, to those in the know, this would have been absolutely incredible to watch unfold. Mary knew that there was no wine left. The servants knew that there was no wine left. The disciples knew that there was no wine left. Perhaps the guests knew. We're not quite sure. But either way, many people knew the bleakness of the situation where there was no longer any wine at this, at this wedding when there should have been wine. And there's more than one way we can look at today's miracle. It's laced with all kinds of symbolism and reference to the second coming of Christ, the renewal work that God is bringing, the joy of restoration found in Jesus. There is lots, but today I want us just to look at one small moment, a couple of simple words that resulted in simple action that revealed the glory of God, and it's these words, just go and fill the jars. Fill the jars with water. This was not an extravagant instruction. Filling water jars was a fundamental task of the servants. It was an unglorious task. It was an unseen task. It was a task that required no particular talent. It didn't get a mention in the groom's speech at the end of the night. To all of those who filled the jars, thank you. That didn't happen. No one got thanked for it. It was a behind-the-scenes activity that happened without fanfare or without recognition, and it was performed by the servants. And there are two things that I appreciate so deeply about this instruction and the encounter that I think reveals much about God and his call upon us as we gather at the table. And first one is this, that this miracle at the table shows us that Jesus involves the lowliest in the process. And being of use to Jesus does not require you to hold any particular position. Being of any use to Jesus does not require that you have particular letters after your name. You do not need to have a particular amount of followers on social media, have a status in the way that the world that the people talk about you. You don't have to be on the right team, in with the popular crowd. You don't have to come from the right area. Jesus did not pick the people who held titles. 
He did not pick the people who were seen. We know this in his selection of the disciples. People who were rich or famous or sat at the table that everyone else was looking at. No, in this miracle, the launching of his miracle working career, Jesus chose the lowly. Jesus chose the servant. Jesus chose the unseen. Jesus chose the ones without position. He chose the ones without power, without status, to carry his manifest power and glory across the floor in a cup. I mean, perhaps revival is far more simple and unsexy than we're expecting. If Jesus chose to demonstrate the power of God through a lonely person carrying a cup of water, then we have to assume that it isn't what he wants to do now. Assume that it is what he wants to do now. Nothing has changed. That God wants to use the lowly, the servant. Humility paired with obedience ushers the kingdom of God into reality. This is what we see here. That humility paired with obedience ushered this mind-blowing miracle into the midst of a wedding party. I remember a, a trip that I did with Jen back when I was 19 to Colombia, and we were there with open doors and we were meeting with um, people of the regions out there who had um, been forcibly moved out of their villages by the warring militias over there in the drug and arms trade of South America. And at one point we were staying um, in an orphanage that was full of children who had been displaced by these militia groups coming through and saying, get out um, or we will... Um, take you all out and so these children were rescued from these places and ended up at this orphanage and one night after a day of helping in the school and playing a big game of soccer we found ourselves around the fire at night and uh, I can't remember exactly what we were doing around the fire I don't know if we were cooking marshmallows or not but I remember at one point one of the kids pulled out a guitar and just started singing some worship songs um, in Spanish because that's what they speak there in Colombia and they were singing, and it was just this kind of real special moment. And I sat back for a moment thinking, how cool is this? 19-year-old here to save the world over in another country. You know, we're doing our thing for Jesus. You know, I felt pretty, a moment of just like, yeah, this is special. But that feeling tipped on its head pretty quickly. And as we sat there worshipping together, some of the kids gathered around us to pray for us. And I just remember a whole stack of kids, they would have been, I don't know, 7, 8, 9, 10, maybe up to... 12 years old, and someone's playing a guitar and singing, and these children that were praying for us laid hands on us and were praying words that I understood nothing of. But as a 19-year-old coming out of a tradition that didn't really talk much about the manifest power of God and the presence of God actually impacting lives and being a felt presence in our lives, it was new to me to feel this electrifying presence of God in my heart as seven-year-old children in a village in the jungles of Colombia prayed for me. And I sat there being so overwhelmed that God would meet me there through them. And this moment has stuck with me as a wise teacher who says, you're never too small, never too unseen, never too forgotten, too lowly for God to use. Indeed, it's the humble, the lonely, the servant-hearted that God loves to use for his glory. As I reflected on this memory this week, I was drawn back to Paul's encouragement to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 62, 
to 68. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Now, this is a reminder that we too are called to be lowly servants of the King, not holding on to any label or category the world may give us, but following the example of Christ Jesus himself, who humbled himself, taking on the very form of a what? A servant. May we be reminded that at the table of God's kingdom, at the table of this church, at the table of your workplace, of your family, that Jesus will use those who are lowly so that he can be made high. And secondly and lastly, this miracle at the table shows how Jesus uses the mundane for the miraculous. When presented with the issue of having run out of wine, Jesus doesn't tell them to get on their knees and pray for revival. He doesn't stop the wedding feast and tell them to, everyone, look, I'm about to open heaven, and all of a sudden it rained wine down from the open clouds of heaven. He doesn't make an announcement over the PA asking for an empty jar or ask for one of those big ones to be brought over, like David Copperfield saying, now everybody watch me do this thing. I'm about to perform the greatest miracle anybody has ever seen. No, this needed no announcement. He simply tells the servants to fill the jars. Just fill the jars. The servant's job was not to make miracles happen. Their job was to be obedient to Jesus. And in this case, obedience looked like doing a very routine, very mundane, everyday, run-of-the-mill task that was not unfamiliar, nor was it out of reach for the servants. Indeed, Jesus used the tools they were familiar with to reveal his power. Jesus used that which was their daily job. To reveal his power. You know, I'm curious to know how God is going to use your mundane, daily, routine, the things that when you're running in your lane of life, whether you're an educator, whether you're a tradesperson, whether you're in the care industries, whether you're retired, whether you're a student, Jesus used the run-of-the-mill, ordinary task that required of a servant to usher his kingdom power in in this moment. Jesus often used common, elemental, and simple things to reveal his glory. He used spit and dirt mixed together into a little muddy paste, and he put it on a guy's eyes, and he saw again. He used loaves of bread and some little fishies to feed 5,000 people. He used fishing nets and boats to show his authority. He used the corner of his robe to heal. He used bread and wine to teach the gospel a wooden cross to show his love, an empty hole in the side of a hill and folded burial clothes to show that he is the king. And here at this table moment, water and jars to show that he is the one who has come to heal and restore. You know, I think we often underestimate the power of everyday things paired with everyday obedience. 
Just the everyday, routine, mundane things you find yourself doing all of the time. Underestimating the power of those things when we are obedient to the voice of Jesus who says, I want you just to keep doing what you do. Fill the jars. I was going to tell another story, but there's something more important. I want to invite Tom to come and share for a few moments. We've been talking about um, this idea of a food pantry and how we can be of a blessing to our community through um, this facility and this family as we um, serve the poor and serve those in our community who are in need. And uh, we thought that today would be a great opportunity for Tom to share some of his heart around um, how we can just fill the jars. If serving our community food that they otherwise can't afford is our way of just filling a jar that God can use to reveal his glory in our community, um, then we want in on that. So I'm going to get Tom just to share for a few moments before we wrap up. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Won't keep you long. Um, firstly, how good would it have been to be at the wedding at Cana? Wouldn't it have been amazing? Wouldn't it have been just mind-blowing? Just, just, just amazing stuff. Just amazing stuff. I know I've shared with some of you that last year I did a, a chaplaincy prac up in Lismore, flood-ravaged Lismore. And I divided my time between um, the Lismore soup kitchen and uh, what they call the Good Pantry, which is a food pantry that they have there. It was an amazing week truly was. Um, uh, and what God did to me that week was to really start uh, a fire in my heart about food ministry and what we can do even here at Kingsway. Now, a food pantry is basically providing low-cost groceries. In fact, ultra-low-cost groceries to people in uh, need. But it's just the beginning, because once these people come in, all sorts of other opportunities uh, come up. So it's not just feeding the hungry. It becomes clothing the poor. It becomes creating a community of people who love God and love others, it's about creating a, a space for people to come and not just get the basic staples of food, but somebody to talk to. A place where they can sit down and have a cup of tea and coffee with somebody who will listen to them and won't tell them what to do. Somebody who won't judge them. Somebody who will be there for them somebody who could act as a, as a resource to other people and places in the community where they have, uh, have needs. Um, when I came back from uh, Lismore, I, I did some research about our own Sutherland Shire, where we live, or the vast majority of us live, and the rest want to live. Um, <laughs> now, the, these figures come from Sutherland Council, so fairly fairly reliable. So we've got 232,000 people living in the Shire. That's 83,780 households. 
we have 7,400 households, this isn't people, this is households, where the household income is less than $500 a week. Um, we have 13,300 households where the household income is less than $800 per week, where you have to pay for your accommodation, your utilities like electricity and water and gas and all that sort of stuff, and then you've got to put food on the table either for yourself or for your family. 13,300 households. That's about one in six. Could you imagine that one in six people, households in your street, would probably be struggling to consistently put good quality food on the table? Now, I've got to admit, it's probably not evenly distributed. But it doesn't matter. 13,300 households. Some. So, look, for us, this is just an enormous um, ministry uh, opportunity. And it is a tremendous opportunity just to feed the hungry and to clothe the poor, to love God and to love people, because that's what, uh, what we're doing when you look at the Bible, and it, and it doesn't matter where you look, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, uh, um, caring for the hungry and the vulnerable uh, is, isn't an option for us. It's what we should do. It's the natural outpouring of God's love uh, uh, for us. Um, I love the way that Jesus said uh, um, to the servants, as we've heard just... Um, just fill the jars. Just, just do something that's relatively simple and I'll use it. I'll use it to my glory. I'll use it to draw people to myself. I'll use it for my purpose. And a food pantry is actually pretty simple. It's just putting food on a table and it's saying to people, come, come. Um, Thursday week, Thursday the 15th at 7.30. We're going to have a meeting here at the church. And if you're interested in participating in this, in building something from nothing, in starting from the ground up, in using the space that we've already got out there to establish a food pantry, then come. 7.30, Thursday week. Thursday the 15th. It'll be a dessert and uh, coffee evening. I'm going to get Lorraine to make one of her famous cheesecakes. So. <laughs> and uh, we'll have other stuffers there. And uh, if you're good, we might even have a good bottle of sticky white. What do you reckon, Dave? Uh, yeah. Come to the table. Come to the table. And, uh, and hopefully share this vision of what a food pantry, plus, 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 because the food pantry is just the beginning of what it can look like here in our church building. So come, Thursday the 15th, Thursday week, 7.30. Dave, thanks for that.
Beautiful. Thanks, Tom. And uh, I'm excited. Tom's going to preach in this series as well towards the end. The uh, meal that Jesus they had on the road to Emmaus. So I'm looking forward to that. I always love hearing your heart, Tom. And um, I will be there um, on that Thursday evening next week. So please come along. It will be a great time just to hear um, and ask questions uh, because we believe that vision isn't something that just comes from one. It's something that emerges from a group. Um, and so as more curious minds get together and passionate people um, get in a room to talk about things, vision emerges and things, uh, God starts breathing on it there. So we're going to wrap up there. Um, yes, Jen, you want to come and pray for that? That would be marvellous. Um, exciting opportunity. Thanks, Jen. God, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity. Father, I know that this is so aligned to who you are and what you call us to. And so, Lord, I just thank you, Lord God, that your word says don't despise small beginnings. And so, Lord, I pray, first of all, over Tom and Lorraine as they continue, Lord God, to lead this initiative, that you would just continue to hedge them in. I pray, Father, that you would just bless them. And I pray, Father, that we'd be so mindful, Lord, of just practically putting our uh, hand to the toil um, and, Lord, just discovering what it is that you are inviting us into during this next, uh, in this next journey. Father, I pray that you would continue, Lord God, to position us, that we, Lord God, would be carriers of your love into all the places and spaces that you invite us into to bring your kingdom, um, your kingdom um, on earth through our actions and through our love and through the demonstration, Lord God, of hospitality as a practice. I love that idea about it being a spiritual discipline. So, Lord, I just want to bless um, Tom and just thank you, God, for uh, what you're doing in his life. And I pray, Father, over this meeting uh, on the 15th, that it would be full of joy and vision and, and hope and and in knowing, God, that you've gone before us. So I just thank you and just commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.